The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. The last weekend of September 2020. 150 years ago, September 26, 1870, a child was born to Crown Prince Frederick of Denmark. He grew up to become King Christian X and reigned through two world wars. During the German occupation of Denmark, he did not... Like most other continental monarchs, including his brother, King Haakon VII of Norway, go into exile and sit out the war far from his people. Instead, he chose to stay, and as a symbol of defiance, would every day ride his Mount Jubilee through the streets of Copenhagen with no guards, no ceremonial cuirassier, no 40-car motorcade, not even a groom. Just one man on horseback, like the king riding through the streets of Strelsau, if you recall my serialization of The Prisoner of Zender, well worth a listen, uh, or its rather less successful recreation in the London LGBT QWERTY parade in our contemporary inversion of Zender. Uh, from a few weeks ago, the prisoner of Windsor. The king did other things too. He financed the escape of Danish Jews into neutral Sweden. But it is that image of a lone septuagenarian on his horse in the streets of an occupied capital uh, that defines Christian X and holds him in the memory of his people. Because of invasion, occupation, mass murder, the bombings of cities, the moving of borders, Europeans used to be aware... Uh, far more than North Americans, I would say, of the fragility of the present, that the happy moment is just that, a moment with an entirely different one waiting just around the corner. There was a small-scale version of that just the other night on Sunset Boulevard. Have you heard of Sunset Boulevard? It's one of the most famous thoroughfares in the world, along with Broadway and the Champs-Élysées and a couple of others. It's in the title of films and novels and musicals, but these days it would be good for a very short, short story. You're driving along, the mob spots you, you're dragged from the car, you're dead, the end. On Thursday night, a Prius, uh, which as everyone knows is the preferred vehicle of MAGA-crazed white supremacists everywhere, a Prius was motoring along Sunset Boulevard and ran into a mostly peaceful protest by mostly peaceful protesters. The mostly peaceful protesters commenced hitting the Prius as a well-known symbol of racism and transphobia, but the Prius managed to take off and head down the street. So the mostly peaceful protesters jumped into their mostly peaceful vehicles and set off after him. A white Prius and now a bunch of, of, of the uh, demonstrators are trying to catch up to him, including that black uh, pickup that has been leading the pack. He's cutting him off. They have the driver pretty much boxed in. They smashed the windows. One of the demonstrators is now trying to pull the driver out of his vehicle. Right there just collided with another car that was also part of the demonstration. And an, an additional person getting out. And you see that one person using what looks like a flag, perhaps a skateboard there, 
to damage this Prius, and now the driver is able to get away. And a little ways up the road, the Prius is pulled over by a police cruiser and the driver is handcuffed by the same policemen who have surrendered the streets to lawless mobs. And like a great big unionised Jerry Falwell Jr., just sit off to one side watching until they decide to rouse themselves to arrest the Prius driver for doing 37 in a 30-mile zone while trying to accelerate away from the mob that smashed up his car. Steve Saylor had a very good joke, and if Hollywood weren't such a bunch of eunuchs, uh, they'd actually make this episode in which uh, Larry David of Curb Your Enthusiasm is driving his Prius down Sunset Boulevard, runs into a crazed violent mob, uh, yet somehow he's the one who winds up getting arrested and splashed all over the papers as the face of white supremacism. Don't go to these cities. I'm being serious here. Don't go to these cities unless you're prepared to shoot your way out. Everything's very normal until suddenly it isn't. And then you're faced with the choice, like this Prius driver in his virtue-signalling runabout, uh, of whether you wish to virtue-signal until death. The Prius guy didn't. But as I said, it's all normal until it isn't. That was uh, like the German invasion of Denmark in April 1940, by the way, also very sudden and overwhelming. Societal order holds until the point at which it crumbles. With that in mind, I'd just like to underline a point I made to Tucker the other night about the former pimp uh, just hired by the city of Seattle as its, quote, streets are at 150 grand a year. If you took seriously the last six months in America and you genuinely believed there were real problems to solve, you would not put a useless ass of a perpetual grievance shakedown artist on the payroll because that's just the same old, same old that confirms that... Uh, this whole great epochal moment is a joke and your response to it is a joke. No serious person, no serious person wants to live in a society built by this movement. All the Hollywood celebrities want to support this movement and live as far away from it as possible. Because this movement can build nothing. It can only destroy. This week... The summer-long March of the Morons briefly turned into the charge of the Moron Brigade. The census is being taken at the moment. Uh, I don't know why they're bothering, given the imperviousness of Black Lives Matter to facts and statistics. You might as well just pull the numbers out of your butt. But in the homicidal hellhole of Chicago, apparently householders are falling behind in their response to the census because it's hard to know if that knock on the door is a census taker or just the guy down the street coming to shoot your four-year-old. So as one of America's most admired mayors and no doubt a presidential contender in years to come, Laurie Lightfoot came up with a serious plan to get Chicago's census response back on track. Today, the mayor put on a green western style hat to announce a novel approach to getting the word out. She says it's time to giddy up. And I'm happy to report I'm calling out the census cowboy. If you see the census cowboy coming to your neighborhood, that's not a good thing. 
Not a good thing because the census cowboy will only be going to the Chicago neighborhoods with the lowest response rates, the 10 neighborhoods with the lowest response rates. They did not give any details on to who will be paying for that equine outreach effort. That cowboy, by the way, Adam Hollingsworth, he was featured on WTTW Chicago Tonight back in May as the dreadhead cowboy in our Chicago portrait series. Oh, isn't that cute? Giddy up. So two months ago, Adam Hollingsworth, the dreadhead cowboy, was hired to be Chicago's census cowboy. Unfortunately, Mr. Hollingsworth is either a total moron or deeply evil. This week, Mayor Lightfoot's census cowboy and his trusty steed led the usual grunting mob of halfwits on a seven-and-a-half-mile chase that closed down the city's Dan Ryan Expressway. This is the Dan Ryan with this um, guy on a horse. A horse on the highway, and it all began with this man. Shut his live. Y'all see this? This is going to get shut down. Adam Hollingsworth, who calls himself the Dreadhead Cowboy, going live on social media with a message. Kids lives matter. Until kids lives matter, until we understand kids lives matter, nothing else matter. For more than seven miles, and with a motorcycle escort of activists supporting him, the Dreadhead Cowboy shut down the Dan Ryan. SkyMap 7 along for the ride, clocking the horse at more than 15 miles per hour. Other activists ready to deliver a stern message. When it comes to everything, we get the bottom of the barrel of everything. It's not going to happen no more. It's time for things to change. And we can keep saying it, but if we don't start moving and doing it, nothing's going to happen. In these photos shared with Eyewitness News, the horse appears injured and bleeding and tonight chopper 7 hd tracking it and spotting it safe and now resting with handlers from chicago's office of animal care and control nobody is listening to us only time you want to listen is when we do stuff radical they're hitting my page all day talking about animal cruelty they're crying out who's crying out for the cruelty in our neighborhood i'm not much of a horseman uh, but basically, all the women in my family are three generations uh, currently, and I cannot imagine anyone who knows anything about horses galloping a poor creature down an interstate highway, an auto route, a motorway, whatever they call it in your neck of the woods, for seven and a half miles. It's the equivalent of making your octogenarian granny run a marathon. You would need industrial strength horseshoes for that and this horse did not have them uh, by the time uh, the poor nag collapsed he was dehydrated overheated had big dilated cartoon eyes and was bleeding profusely from severe leg lacerations the horse is now with the vet and will never be ridden again. Indeed, because of what this wicked man, Adam Hollingsworth, chose to do to this creature, the horse may have to be put down because otherwise he will be living in excruciating pain every day for the rest of his life. Because of Adam Hollingsworth and because of Laurie Lightfoot, the stupid, talentless mayor, who made this twit her census cowboy. And while we're at it, because of the dimwit Chicago media, like that cutie girly reporter on the clip I just played, who thought Mayor Lightfoot's cowboy was just a really awfully funny little gimmick. 
Do you want to live in a society built by this quote-unquote movement? It cannot build anything. It can only destroy. Oh, just in time to rescue us all from the racism and lead us to the social justice utopia. Here comes Laurie Lightfoot's cavalry. Oh, no, wait, sorry, the horse has just dropped dead. This poor horse is America, and the morons are riding it to death. In the United Kingdom, the National Trust is the organization that when some broken down Marquis or Viscount runs into trouble, takes over the grand estate for the benefit of the nation, keeps up the castle and lets the public tour it when they wish to. I always find that a bit sad when a living, breathing home becomes a museum. But the National Trust are regarded as doing this well. And one of the chaps uh, who ensured it was done as sensitively as possible was James Lees Milne, whom I knew in the last years of his life. He was almost parodically, languidly upper class and uh, bisexual, of course. Uh, he was uh, certainly very attentive to me, but I was, a, uh, I was a lot younger and rather more fetching back then. At Eton, he'd been the lover of Tom Mitford, the only brother of the famous Mitford sisters, and um, and uh, Jim Lee Smilne was devastated when Tom Mitford was killed in action in Burma at the end of the war. I think in my book, uh, Mark Stein's Passing Parade, I mentioned an anecdote uh, relayed to me by Diana Mosley when her brother was at Eton and deeply in unrequited love with a boy called Milton. And one weekend, the family were all tootling through the Oxfordshire countryside and came to the village of, as the sign proclaimed, Milton under Witchwood. And Tom Mitford sighed, Ah, lucky Witchwood. And in the handful of times I passed the sign for Milton under Witchwood over recent decades, I've always remembered Diana's anecdote and chuckled. I don't know whether there's a village called Lease Milne under Witchwood, uh, but certainly Jim Lease Milne was so positioned vis-a-vis -vis young Mitford. Anyway, for many years, he was the indispensable man uh, at the National Trust. But this week, the Trust released its interim report on, quote, addressing our histories of colonialism and historic slavery, which clumsy clunker of a title, James Lee Smilne, an elegant and waspish diarist, would have despised. And what do you know, among the other fatuities of the report, they've decided to throw Lee Smilne under the bus because he was, quote, often associated with the families he was writing about. As Charles Moore points out in The Spectator, if he were black, uh, the closeness to the people who built and ran these homes would be evidence of, quote, lived experience. That's why Chicago's murderous census cowboy uh, and Seattle's municipal pimp both got their jobs. Look, I'm so bored by all this. Bored, bored, bored. The guy, it's all fake. Nobody means it. The woke corporations don't mean it. The stupid celebrities don't mean it. The sports guys don't mean it. The guys who lived in those National Trust houses saved by the elegant and waspish bisexual who knew their families too well. The guys who lived in those National Trust houses built the modern world. Not all of it, but a huge part of it. You might regret this. You might wish that that nice tribal elder halfway up the Congo had built it instead, but he didn't. He didn't. And the modern world, built on ideas 
and customs derived from a very narrow sliver of humanity has enabled more people, billions of them, white, black, brown, yellow, to live lives of greater health, greater wealth, greater opportunity and greater fulfilment than at any other time in human history. The British Empire, the American Republic have been two great blessings for humanity. The Americans tend to see them as oppositional entities, but as the historian Andrew Roberts likes to say, posterity will regard them as one, as they do with the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire. They're a good thing. If you want the facts and figures on the British Empire and its legacy, have a listen to episode 24 of The Prisoner of Windsor. So I'm not interested in surrendering that legacy piecemeal to goons who cannot build anything, who can only destroy. Because meeting those morons an eighth of the way, a third of the way, three quarters of the way, 15 sixteenths of the way, will leave civilization in the same condition as that poor horse in Chicago. Where's Bob? on this stuff. A Churchill ashamed of England is a contradiction in terms. One more. As you know, I like to quote my old comrade George Jonas and his great insight from many years ago when the Royal Canadian Mounted Police were discovered to have been burning the barns of Quebec separatists. And there was a huge public uproar. And Pierre Trudeau sneered, as was his wont, that if people were that upset about barn burning, maybe he'd pass a law making barn burning legal. And George Jonas was obliged to point out that Monsieur Trudeau had missed the central point. Burning barns isn't wrong because it's illegal. It's illegal because it's wrong. We now have another of those moments. The New York City Transit Authority has been forced by the vast amount of human feces on its trains to make human defecation on the New York subway illegal. Public human defecation isn't wrong because it's illegal. It's illegal because it's wrong. And indeed, by the time you're obliged to pass a law prohibiting it, your society is pretty far down the S-bend of the toilet of history. Public defecation isn't wrong because it's illegal. And if you reach the stage where you have to legislate against it, A, it's almost certainly not going to work, and B, you are a jurisdiction with insufficient social norms to hold yourselves together. Escape the quarantine by delving into fantastic fiction chosen and read by Mark Stein himself in Stein's Tales for Our Time. Thrillers, mysteries, science fiction, romance. Tales that transcend genre. Everything from classics to titles hidden in the upper shelves. Mark Stein Club members can listen to the full catalog of nearly three dozen tales for our time. Hear them all by going to www.steinonline.com tfot. And we will have a new tale for our time tomorrow evening, Saturday, at 8 p.m. North American Eastern Time. That's midnight GMT. You'll have to work it out from there. But do please join me for that. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. Fall nips the air. And because there has been in 2020 a locked down spring and a lost summer, the melancholy of autumn has set in a little earlier than it usually does, for me at any rate. This poem is celebrating the bicentenary of its publication. That's to say, 200 years ago, September 1820, was the very first autumn to which was applied John Keats's great opening line, Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness. Keats had written the poem 
the previous year and indeed technically the previous season in summer. On September 19th, 1819, he was walking along the River Itchen near Winchester in Hampshire and was moved by the sight. How beautiful the season is now, how fine the air, a temperate sharpness about it. Really, without joking, chaste weather, Diane skies. I never liked stubble fields so much as now. Aye, better than the chilly green of the spring. Somehow a stubble plain looks warm, in the same way that some pictures look warm. This struck me so much in my Sunday's walk that I composed upon it. And he did. It's a formally interesting poem in three stanzas in many parallel tripartite progressions. Autumn is a dramatic transition. Early fall is beautiful, all those leaves. Late fall is bleak, for the leaves are gone and the trees are bare. So Keats's first stanza is as he felt on that walk on the River Itchen, all the mellow fruitfulness. The second stanza is mid-autumnal labours, the granary floor and the half-reaped furrow. And the final stanza is a portent of winter, the wailful choir of small gnats. And even as the season advances, so does the day. The poem moves in its three stanzas from morning to afternoon to twilight and additionally through the senses from the tactile swell of the gourd and plump of the hazel shells to sight and then to sound. I don't want to make too much of the structure lest it get in the way of the sheer sensual pleasure of this enduring ode. First published in July 1820 in the collection Lamia, Isabella, The Eve of St Agnes and Other Poems by John Keats, To Autumn. Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness, close bosom friend of the maturing sun, conspiring with him how to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the thatch eaves run, to bend with apples the mossed cottage trees and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core, to swell the gourd and plump the hazel shells with a sweet kernel, to set budding more and still more later flowers for the bees, until they think warm days will never cease, for summer has o'erbrimmed their clammy cells. Who hath not seen thee oft amid thy store? Sometimes whoever seeks abroad may find thee sitting careless on a granary floor, thy hair soft lifted by the winnowing wind, or on a half-reaped furrow sound asleep, drowsed with the fume of poppies, while thy hook spares the next swath and all its twined flowers. And sometimes like a gleaner thou dost keep steady thy laden head across a brook, or by a cider-press with patient look thou watchest the last oozings, hours by hours. Where are the songs of spring? Aye, where are they? Think not of them, thou hast thy music too while barred clouds bloom the soft-dying day and touch the stubble plains with rosy hue. Then in a wailful choir the small gnats mourn among the river sallows, borne aloft or sinking as the light wind lives or dies. 
and full-grown lambs loud bleat from hilly bourne. Hedge crickets sing, and now with treble soft the red breast whistles from a garden croft, and gathering swallows twitter in the skies. A poem from Me to You by John Keats, first published 200 years ago, July 1820. In a wailful choir, the small gnats mourn among the river sallows, borne aloft or sinking as the light wind lives or dies. Not a lot of stubble plains with rosy hue on the streets of Seattle and Louisville, but I feel the chill of late autumn and the onset of winter nevertheless. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Kathy in London, England, who recently joined the Mark Stein Club, and we're jolly glad to have you along. Kathy writes, Hi, Mark. I've really enjoyed listening to you read The Journal of the Plague Year by Daniel Defoe, and it's fascinating to compare it to our visitation today. How would you sum up the lessons we can learn from looking back at the 1665 plague, and what advice would you give your old pal Boris regarding the Wuhan flu if he would listen to you? Uh, Well, I think I just gave Boris a bit of advice, read the uh, Churchillian pose 10 minutes ago, but without... Uh, wishing to give away Kathy's postal code. I see she lives not far from where the events Daniel Defoe describes actually took place, so I can see why it would be of interest. As I think I said back when we launched the serialisation in the spring, there has in fact been nothing new in three and a half centuries. Back in London in 1665, they socially distanced, they wore facial coverings, and if they showed uh, certain symptoms, they quarantined. Those are exactly the three things I was told to do when I landed from overseas at Logan Airport in Boston just a week or two back. The crucial difference is that today we have a vast bloated bureaucracy handing out the same old advice from three and a half centuries ago, money no object. So at Logan Airport, uh, they uh, crammed us into a narrow corridor at the top of the jetway, in other words, just after we've opened the door of the plane, uh, to tell us to social distance. Uh, But you're not social distancing from us, I said to the guy, and he replied, well, it wasn't his fault that the corridor was too narrow. Then his colleague made us take our masks off so they could photograph us. So much for the mask protections. But the critical difference I took away as I read that story back in uh, March and April was this. 1665, obviously, is the pre-democratic age. Uh, The democratic age is, in fact, very recent. Uh, I mentioned King Christian X at the top of the show. Our Danish listeners will be familiar with the Easter crisis of 1920, just a hundred years ago, 1920, over the reunification of uh, Schleswig with Denmark, when Christian X behaved rather more like an absolute monarch than a constitutional one. Denmark's Easter crisis of 1820. I'll bet we're the only show talking about that today. That's unique to the Mark Stein Show. But my point is that the democratic age is relatively new and we do not think of Londoners of 1665 as free because 
they do not get to go to a polling station and be given a piece of paper and cast a vote every four or five years for a political party uh, from whose number they will then choose a secretary of state for health uh, who forbids you from leaving the house between 8 p.m. and 5 a.m. And in the hours when you are permitted to leave, you can only leave for one of three designated purposes and then only for an hour or so. Um, but I, uh, thinking about that, I came to the conclusion as I was reading Daniel Defoe's tale during a comparatively light lockdown in New Hampshire, um, certainly uh, by comparison with New York or New Jersey or Paris or Ireland or Australia, uh, I came to the conclusion that the Londoners of 1665 were nevertheless freer than we are today in so-called democratic societies, because it would never have occurred to the Lord Mayor of London to attempt to wield the powers that, say, Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio have wielded for these last few months, to the ruination of millions of people's livelihoods, and actually uh, with fatal consequences for all the people they banged up in those old folks' homes. So if democracy means uh, no more or less than filling in a piece of paper a couple of times a decade, well, whoop-de-doo, bully for you. But if it means the animating spirit of freedom... I don't see it. If you've a choice, as you have in many parts of the Western world right now, between voting for a party that thinks the citizenry need to be put under de facto house arrest uh, for nine months and a party that thinks the citizenry need to be put under house arrest indefinitely, uh, then whatever that's about, it isn't freedom. As I said, every single remedy for contagion that we use today has been used for centuries. The only difference is that back then it was largely the free choice of prudent citizens. Today it is universally enforced by an all-powerful panopticon state whose commissars have almost unlimited power. And people can get a taste for that, which is now uh, why you see some of the usual crowd of global warmongers are calling for a climate lockdown, a climate lockdown. It's not going to be two weeks to flatten that curve. And now, Stein Online presents Mark Stein's Song of the Week. Al Kasher died a few days ago. He was one half of a songwriting team with Joel Hirshhorn. And when the songwriting wasn't going so well, they turned to writing books about writing songs. If they ask you, you can write a song and notes on Broadway, in which they talk to a lot more famous songwriters, the Leonard Bernsteins and Burt Bacharachs, about uh, writing for the theatre. They're pretty good books if you're interested in solid writing advice. It was in connection with one of them that I had my first and only encounter with Mr. Kasher. As songwriters, he and Joel Hirshhorn peaked in the early 70s with two Oscar winners from disaster movies that did pretty well on the pop charts from the Poseidon Adventure. This was a number one record. There's got to be a morning after If we can hold on through the night 
And from the towering inferno, this Oscar winner, well, not a number one record, but number five in Australia. We may never love like this again. Don't stop the flow. We can't let go. That's Maureen McGovern singing both those big movie themes. Now, I can take or leave those songs. They're just soft rock schlock. I can't recall the last time I heard them on the radio. And indeed, I've seen Maureen McGovern in concert a handful of times over the years, and she doesn't even sing her own hits. Uh, She's become a rather serious singer, Sondheim and the like, uh, somewhat solemn art song renditions of the heavier side of Jimmy Webb, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress and whatnot. Uh, But there is one Kasher and Hirshhorn song from that period that I'm fond of. They wrote just the lyrics, the English lyrics. The tune and the original French words are by Charles Aznavour. And I'll get to it a bit circuitously, as is increasingly my want. Herbert Kretzmer, uh, Herbert Kretzmer is the lyricist of Les Miserables, and millions and millions round the world know the songs he wrote for that show. Can you hear the people sing, I dreamed a dream, on my own, on and on. And Herbie got that gig because one day he went to see the great West End producer Cameron McIntosh about reviving an old, forgotten, not terribly successful show of his from the 60s, a musical version of the Admirable Crichton. And Cameron wasn't in the least bit interested in reviving the Admirable Crichton, but he's very sweet and polite and always tries to be positive uh, when he's giving the thumbs down to your stinkeroo of an idea. And so in the course of the chit-chat, Cameron remembered that Herbie had written the English lyrics to a couple of Charles Aznavour hits and figured that if you can anglicise Charles Aznavour, you can anglicise Victor Hugo. One Frenchman's much like any other, right? Uh, So he offered him Les Miserables, And as a result, Herbie isn't in the least bit miserable. In fact, he's one of the least miserable people in show business today. Uh, One day, not long after Les Mis opened, I chanced to be in Herbert Kretzmer's flat in Basel Street in Knightsbridge, just behind Harrods, more or less, and I was with a young lady uh, with whom I was hoping one thing might lead to another. So I was seeking to impress, and so surveying a photo of Messrs. Kretzmer and Asnavour and a framed bit of sheet music, I said to the young lady, "Uh, Did you know Herbie wrote the lyrics to She and Yesterday When I Was Young? And, And then I named a third song. No, said Mr. Kretzmer firmly. That wasn't me, that was the other fellows. By which he meant Al Kasher and Joel Hirshhorn. This was that song and my favourite song of theirs. Dance in the old-fashioned way Won't you stay in my arms Just melt against my skin And let me feel your heart Don't let the music win by dancing far apart Come close where you belong Let's hear our secret song Dance 
Fashioned Way, music by Charles Aznavour, English lyrics by Al Kasher and Joel Hirshhorn. And of course, that day in Basel Street, as soon as I'd misattributed it to Herbert Kretzmer, I could have kicked myself because it's not in the least bit like a Herbie Kretzmer song. She and Yesterday When I Was Young are literate and profound lyrics. And so I felt Herbie had been kind of insulted by my attributing to him Dance in the Old Fashioned Way, which is just a breezy, blithe pop song. And as you can sort of tell from that arrangement, Asnavor had in mind one of those smooth Burt Camphart charts, like Spanish Eyes or Strangers in the Night, that gives you a big, international, easy-listening smash which I also don't think would have been quite Herbie's bag. Uh, So I started brooding on my faux pas, and as a result, as far as that young lady was concerned, the evening didn't quite go the way I'd wanted. Herbie wouldn't have written this song anything like the way Kasher and Hershorn wrote it, and the way they wrote it, everybody, for a while, wanted to sing it. Helen Reddy did, and Fred Astaire, and the Carpenters, and Ken Dodd, and Liberace. Here's Monsieur Asnavour in the mid-70s introducing another version of the song. Because he's on telly, and this is the way telly producers think, he's introducing the number while standing on the rear platform of a London double-decker bus to the bemusement of the other passengers. Uh, It must have been considered a genius concept by whoever came up with it at the BBC from a 1976 edition of The Shirley Bassey Show. Oh, hey! I have to tell you how much I love your interpretation of my song. Please, sing it once more for me. Just for me. Thank you. This is just for you, Charles. Yeah. In the old-fashioned way, won't you see in my eyes? Just melt against my skin. And let me feel your heart Don't let the music win By dancing far apart Come close Where you belong Let's hear Our secret song Dance In the old Oh, fashion That makes me love 
his bus evidently having arrived at television centre. On comes Charles Aznavour hurrying on to join Shirley Bassey. If you ever saw him do the song on stage, you'd know he liked to turn his back to the audience and uh, then put his arms around himself so that it looked as if he were dancing with someone. I always thought it was a bit creepy, like a guy making out with himself. But he's a fairly diminutive chap, so if you give him a real partner to dance with, you wind up with what happened on Shirley's show. He came out, sang a few words in response to Labassi's effusions, and you never heard a word he said because his nose was parked in her cleavage. There are worse places to be. Won't you stay in my arms? I will. I will for a long time. I won't, I won't go away. And we'll discover heights from yes, we never knew before. We just go behind no, no, no. and don't let the music win by dancing far apart. When you've got your noggin crushed in Shirley Bassey's En Bon Point, you're certainly winning. But the lyric, alas, is having a tougher time. When you got his head out from Shirley's cleavage, Charles Aznavour had a little patter he liked to do between choruses, uh, which Al Kasher and Joel Hirshhorn also wrote. It didn't mean much to me as a young un, but it touches me more. As the years go by, come closer. Forget about the others. It's nice to be like this, cheek to cheek, in the old-fashioned way. <laughs> it's funny, but I have the feeling that we're dancing as our parents used to do. Well, maybe they weren't wrong. The world changes. Love stays. In the old-fashioned way Won't you stay in my arms And we'll discover eyes We never knew before If we just close our eyes And dance around the floor Fashioned way that makes me love you more. The world changes, love stays. Amen. Charles Aznavour singing Charles Aznavour with a fine English lyric by Joel Hirshhorn and the late Al Kasher. Nothing flashy, just the right words that sit on those notes and glide across the floor. I thank Mr Kasher for that song. The conclusion, that gay old-fashioned way that makes me love you more, may well be the last lyrical deployment of the word gay in the non-sexual sense. A couple of years later, Tom Robinson had a big hit with Sing If You're Glad To Be Gay, and he wasn't talking about old-fashioned dancing. That will do it for today's show. Stick with us this weekend for more music and Kathy Shadle's movie column, and do join me tomorrow for a tale for our time of electoral bent. Stay safe, stay free.
Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.